I'm George Lavender, one of the producers of Making Contact. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We release a show about a different issue every week, but you can join the conversations happening right now on the Making Contact Facebook page and on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Thanks a lot. Here's the show. It's Monday morning, and I am headed out on my first expedition to fire a gun. My friends Ed and Dave are taking me shooting. Those aren't their real names. I met uh, Dave, as we'll call him, through a friend of a friend at a Sunday evening potluck. So the first thing to do is like when someone hands you a gun or you pick up a gun is to clear it. Someone should, you know, show you it's clear and you go like this and so for this one you say, ah, so there's no bullets there. And so, so this pistol is clear. Uh-huh. You set it down. It's no longer clear because the next time you pick it up, you're going you to you're going to go check like that again. again. So it's like you have to imagine there's little gnomes, you know, putting bullets into you your gun. Never know. Right there. So what, yeah. what's that one called again? This is a, um, well, this is a, uh, a security six revolver. Um, now this one is a, a SIG P232, and we'll clear it. You can see into there where the chamber is. So now this is a, uh, a 1938 Mosin infantry rifle from Russia. And uh, then we were ready to roll to his friend Ed's house. Okay, so I come, come from like a, I don't come from gun culture. Um, you know, I grew up in a good liberal gun control family. And uh, I joined the military, I went to boot camp, shot a gun. I always, as a boy, been fascinated with guns, but hadn't been allowed to have one. So for me, going through, it kind of demystified the experience. Like, okay, so it's just a thing, you know, and you shoot it, and it's actually kind of fun. Um, but gun culture is a really strange thing, I think. I'm not really too much part of it, but I do own guns, so I guess people like us are sort of peripherally part of it in a way as gun owners. Right, well that's why you're like, oh, gun culture as if it's an outside thing, but like your tech, if you you use a gun, are you part of gun culture or? Yeah, I don't know. To me it's a very, when I think of gun culture, I think of crazy whack job NRI people that, you know, what I think of as gun culture, I definitely am not part of. But, but it is the question, you know, you're looking at a car now full of guns and we're about right. to go shooting. But I guess it's like just because you drink beer doesn't mean you're part of like beer culture. Like there's some people right. who are like into beer right. and like... I think that's a good analogy. Is this going to be a life transforming experience for no. me? Uh-uh. Yeah, it'll just make your shoulders sore and you have a little bit of ringing in your ears. Yeah. So let's roll well, up. Yeah, let's go. All right. <laughs> So if you couldn't tell yet, this is Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact, and this is me going shooting for the first time up in the Oakland Hills at Chabot Gun Range. This is how we're going to start off this episode, which is about guns. We're trying to give folks a different perspective on uh, what guns are, what the pros and cons might be, and where we might head as a nation in the U.S. related to gun rights and gun control. So we're just about at the gun range we're going on a windy road through the oakland hills through the forest past hiking trails i'm definitely kind of nervous 
sounds like we're here. I'm guessing you probably have about 30, 40, maybe even 50 different little stalls all lined up in a row. Two-thirds of those are for shotguns, and maybe a third of them are for pistols. There's an office up at the top of the hill where you go and register, pay your admission, and get your targets and other accessories. You guys need anything besides targets? Uh, no. All right. Every 15 minutes when the, the shooting period is over, everyone has to put down their weapon, open it up, take all the ammunition out, and then step several feet back behind the line. Cease fire. Unload. Remove all magazines, open all actions, bench all firearms, point it down range, pick up the things you'll need for the target change period, and take them with you back behind the red safety line. And then an inspector comes across and looks at every gun, make sure it's not loaded. Check, change, or put up your targets. Move out, please. And once he gives the clear sign, then all the people can walk into the field, go inspect their targets, see what they hit during that last shooting session. And then they come back past what they call the bench and step behind the line again. They wait for an all clear, and then they say, okay. Ready? Everybody ready? Okay, now shooting can begin. And then you can load up your guns again, and, uh, put ammunition in, and start shooting for another 15 minutes at a time. And the rifle line clear. Thank you. On rifle and pistol line, you have a 15-minute firing period. You may commence firing. Push my cheek there too. Uh-huh. Sit, put my cheek on here too yeah, earlier. Press your cheek against that. You move it a little bit forward. You know. mm-hmm. Yeah, that's some kick right there. First two shots have not been amazing. No idea if I hit it or anything. So my first uh, shot was with the old Russian rifle. I think it was from the 30s. It was big, it was heavy, and uh, it definitely had a lot of kick. What surprised me is that I didn't realize, very naive, the kick comes after the bullet leaves the, the gun, which is good, because I thought the kick comes, your rifle goes up in the air, and your bullet's gonna go straight up on the air. But these machines are so well-engineered that even with the kick, the bullet is likely going to go relatively straight. Um, So even with that difficulty, I was still able to come somewhere near the target on my first shot ever. All right, we're going down to see the targets. It looks like there's two holes here. Uh, So, I mean, this is not... 
bad. Actually, you know, a better group would be if they were a little tighter. Uh, I think you're probably just shooting a little high. So if you lower the post so that the top of the post is right there in okay. your view, uh -huh. then you'll probably hit here more. When I was shooting the rifle, I basically felt like I was taking target practice, which I was. Uh, I could kind of imagine hunting at a faraway animal, but it really just seemed more about developing my, my aim. But when we switched to the revolver towards the end of the morning, uh, it, got, it, got, it got feeling a little different. I you know, was holding my hand out there, seeing the gun and just the stance, and maybe it's all the movies I've seen, or maybe it's just everything we see in the culture. But all I could imagine when I was holding that revolver was a person uh, at the other end, was shooting at someone. Uh, so that, that didn't feel really good. Um, you know, it didn't feel like a sport. It didn't feel like uh, just learning to aim this amazing little machine. It really felt like practicing for people hunting or people shooting. Oh. That was shooting. Yes. I've broken the seal. Yeah. So as we're driving back, I was just thinking about how many people out there might have guns that we don't know about. Uh, I certainly can't say I'm a pro or an expert, but at least next time I meet someone who's talking about shooting, he w I won't be otherizing them in my mind or thinking, oh, that's that type of person because, well, I guess that type of person is me. So I guess you have, there's really no way to tell, but who do you think all those other people were there today? Well, they're just, uh, right? you know, crazy gun nuts. Yeah, some <laughs> other crazy, those are crazy gun nuts, not like us. Uh, no, they were, but it was interesting, they were different. There was another Mosin Nagano rifle like mine. There were a few people with M1 here. Making, making, making contact. Making contact. <laughs> now let's go to Montana, where producer Amy Martin spent some time with a guy you might think of as the stereotypical American gun owner. Listen closely to this audio portrait, though, and you might find some views that don't quite fit the mold. So you just have your finger set, and then you'll have one in the chamber. Instead of leaning back like this, stand forward into it. There you go. So you got one in the chamber. You're good to go. My name is Matt Knox. I live up the Blackfoot Valley. And I work on a small guest ranch in western Montana. Born and raised in southern Minnesota and moved out here uh, 20 years ago. I look at guns as is, is, is really, it is another tool that we use. It's a significant tool, and it's not a tool that gets used on a regular basis, but having access to a gun, I think, is, is valuable for this place. It's the kind of wood that heats you twice. Once when you split it, once when you burn it. <laughs> you know, the kid guns at that time were like, made out of metal and wood and so you know we played with guns 
I remember we used to have like tag with guns, you know, with the whole neighborhood. Every kid would bring their guns over and <laughs> you'd team up and then everybody was out for each other. <laughs> when I'd get bored, they'd give me a little air rifle and I'd go shoot squirrels off the corn crib. Just something to get out of the house for. The first deer I got, it was a very powerful moment for me to, you know, recognize, and it, it's it's kind of one of those, like, hippy-dippy type things, but, you know, that's a lot of life energy that you've just taken. And, uh, you know, I think to not do that respectfully would be a real travesty. And then, you know, to take care of the meat, take care of the animal, and, you know, get it home. And, and um, I mean, it's, it's an awe-inspiring type moment, for sure. I wanted to do it right. Like, I didn't want to buy a tag, get a gun, go out there and not know what I was doing. Well, they're getting treats now, senior feed this time of year, so this is Jesse, and that's Jalapeno. And then there's uh, another horse named Jazz in here, I believe, around the corner. Yeah, all these guys are late 20s for sure, but yeah, she's she's in her 30s. We have moments when we have to put a horse down and say, if, if the horse is injured, or you have to do it immediately, or if you're trying to do it in a way that is more respectful to the animal, uh, versus putting in a trailer and sending it down the road. One of the last horses we put down on the ranch, she was a great kid's horse. A small horse, but her head was enormous. Looked like a hippopotamus or something. It was just a goofy looking horse. <clears throat> that was pretty sad to see her go down for sure. You know, we, we took her up on the mountain, put her down. We led her up together. and <clears throat> I had a picture of... Uh, my niece riding the horse and I had that picture with and you know it's not an easy thing to do it's you know pretty emotional so you don't you don't have much of a conversation for a while you know you kind of in your own thoughts and yeah it was tough that was tough to see her go for sure but yeah we were happy you know she didn't go you know into town or you know banging down the road yeah ago uh, it was a phone call from an NRA type organization and um, one of the questions I asked was if I have guns and if I use guns and I said I do and I hunt with them and you know there was definitely some real concern about who I was going to vote for imagine your child screaming in the middle of the night when a convicted felon breaks into your home you use a firearm to defend yourself and your family Unbelievably, Barack Obama voted to make you the criminal. There was just a lot of fear-mongering or like, if you appreciate having access to guns, you cannot let this person become elected. Obama voted four times to deny citizens the right of self-protection, even in their home. Defend freedom. Defeat Obama. Oh, that is a joke. Yeah, I thought it was a complete joke, and, and I just, I, I didn't appreciate not being able to have a rational discussion. 
I, I told the, the gentleman on the phone that I don't think I have to worry about my hunting rifle that holds four shells being taken from me. He just couldn't understand how if I had guns and I enjoyed having access to guns and using them, how I could not be on board with this fear that our guns were going to get taken away. I don't think that will ever be the case and to kind of prey on people for an election cycle like that. For me, I thought he was a joke. They didn't even use nails. <clears throat> they used concrete pins that they salvaged from concrete forms. And then they'd straighten them and sharpen them in the grinder. So they didn't buy nails. I'm not sure they were actually cost-effective doing that, but it's impressive. <laughs> that was one of those rainy day jobs. The gun world is dominated by men, I would say. I, I had one uncle who I heard him say like, you know, how'd you like to be standing at the end of the driveway when I pull, you know, this thing out? I'm like, holy crap, like, who is this guy? <laughs> Sometimes when people start talking so crazy like that, you just don't know if it's actual, if they actually truly mean this or not, or if they're just kind of, I'm a rough, tough Yosemite Sam and, and you know, look at me go. And, and you know, the idea of, if I'm afraid, I, I'm, I don't want to be a victim and uh, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to not be a victim. I would say there is definitely a, a sense of fear because I think, you know, anytime that you're, you're so prepared to not be a victim isn't just coming from a place of strength. Like, if you're prepared to not be a victim, you're afraid of being a victim. I'm just not going to live in that fear. I'm, I'm going to choose to try to find a better place and myself and, and the people around me where I'm not always on edge. I mean, we have people, you know, they get lost hunting. And you know they have a gun, they've been hunting. And they come knocking on your door late at night and they just want help. You know, you can't, you can't answer the door with a pistol every time. My God, like I'm just not gonna live that way. Brand new. part of my dad's life and, and uh, I also knew that he wasn't someone who felt threatened and he also wasn't someone who felt he needed to be threatening. I would love it if more people live their life in a way that you know you have that expectation of your fellow man of you know respect and admiration for each other versus always on the lookout for what may or may not happen. I use guns how I want to use them, and I'm also not living in fear. You can get a lot accomplished by talking to people versus an immediate uh, defensive reaction.
Montana's Blackfoot Valley. That piece was produced by Amy Martin. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. Find out how to donate, download shows, or get our podcast. Go to radioproject.org, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. A peculiar story in the history of gun control took place in the 1960s in California. Up until then, it had been legal to carry weapons in public, provided they were clearly displayed. Then, in 1967, that changed in response to one group, the Black Panther Party. They put trumped-up charges of conspiracy and felonies on everyone who went in to exercise a constitutional right and said they had no right to bear arms in a public place. The uh, California Penal Code, Section 1220 through 12027, and also the Second Amendment of the Constitution guarantees the citizen a right to bear arms on public property. That's Huey Newton, one of the co-founders of the Panthers. The group had been carrying out armed patrols where, with their own weapons, they would follow and monitor the police. East Bay legislator Don Mulford introduced a bill to make that illegal. The bill became known as the Panther Bill. And in response, on May 2nd, a group of armed Panthers walked into the Capitol in Sacramento. The protest made national news. But the Panthers weren't the only ones arming themselves in the 60s and 70s. And as Making Contact producer George Lavender found, not everyone has given up on their beliefs. I believed in self-defense from the very beginning. This was one of the first things that Tamu McFalls told me when we met at her home in San Bernardino, California. She's 66 years old now and lives in an apartment complex with her dog. That's my dog, Ryder. Okay. Uh, yeah, he's a little uh, <laughs> hyper-electric owner. Forty years ago, McFalls was an active member of the Communist Party here in Los Angeles. Uh, 68 to 77, I think. 77, 77. She worked on Communist Party campaigns, but she was also part of a smaller group within the party who practiced for armed self-defense. I, I do believe in a two-pronged approach. I believe in public, you know, mass, uh, grassroots organizing. You have a two-pronged approach that there's a, there has to be an armed camp, I think, ready to proceed when the grassroots movement fails. And uh, I, I still believe that. Unlike some of the other members of the group, firing a gun was not hard for McFalls. She said she grew up around firearms and fired her first gun when she was still a child. So exactly what age? I don't know. So uh, maybe about 11 or 12. She says it was on one of her family's vacations where the kids could go off and shoot rifles. We'd go spend, the, you know, four, four days uh, regularly in all the lakes fishing and hunting. I didn't care for the hunting part. My uncle, only a, four years older than me, at 12 years old, killed a full-grown bear. And it was in the newspaper in Ventura. 
McFall's involvement in radical politics began at Southwest Junior College in South Central LA. McFall's got involved in campus politics in her first semester. We formed the Black Student Union, and that was a part of the whole Black Student Union awareness all across the country. And we sparked it off, and it just, we were the hotbed. And her political work quickly overshadowed her studies. I never finished that first semester because we were all over the country by then. The, the movement in, in South Central LA just blossomed and we were at the heart of it. McFalls was never a member of the Black Panthers who were on the rise at the time. Instead, she was part of the Communist Party, but she did support them and says she saw firsthand the repression they faced. We were under attack, you know, that's been, bare, that's been borne out. Uh, or in most of the major cities, would definitely openly declare war on the Black Panther Party and their support. But I believed in self-defense from the very beginning because I had become aware of, of some of the hostility that we encountered whenever we would speak up about certain issues. In the Communist Party, members like McFalls, who believed that guns might be necessary in the movement, began to meet and train using firearms. We had the two-pronged approach. We participated, you know, in the mass organization, and we were spread thin and running all over the world and the country, uh, you know, participating in this movement and that movement. But only so many knew that we were practicing. Uh, we were armed ourselves. The group called itself the Che Lumumba Club, McFalls was the chair. Uh, Tay Guevara and uh, Patrice Lumumba from Africa, those were our heroes, and they both uh, embraced uh, the armed struggle. Not everyone in the party knew or agreed with what the club was doing. They were older and, you know, a little more conservative than we were. But we were in South Central LA, and we knew that things were different. And so for all over the country, we were going and meeting with comrades who were in the, in, the, in the hood, in New York. You know, 125th Lennox. It was not the same. Where the rest of the party was meeting, you know, they were, they were not dealing with the same things that we were dealing with. McFall says she already knew how to handle a gun, but it was a new experience for many of the club's members, and they trained together in City Park. And we went out to learn how to use, we learned the weapons, you know. You had, and, and it was more acceptable. There were public um, uh, gun ranges, what have you. We didn't break, have to break the law to learn, to and go and learn how to shoot. And so long, none of us had felonies and what have you then. I, I enjoyed going out to charge range. Before says she liked the 9mm handgun and the M1 carbine. But a shotgun was my favorite because I wore glasses. I wore glasses since I was nine years old. If, if something came to me in the middle of the night, I didn't have to worry about trying to find my glasses. If I got had a shotgun, I'm going to hit you. All I got to do is point it in your direction. And I don't, when I shoot you, I don't want you getting up. Nowadays, McFalls does have a felony, and so she can't legally own a gun anymore. She also spent some time living on the streets on LA's Skid Row, and what she saw there changed her views on guns. Because of the, uh, the, the black-on-black, and, uh, you know, uh, 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 and, and violence against women, uh, 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 I, would, I would be less inclined to pull a gun out. While McFall says she still believes in the right of armed self-defense, she says the political situation has changed since the 60s and 70s. 
you know, guns on guns, gun itself is not the answer. I don't want to shoot somebody. You can't shoot someone and make them believe you or accept you. But you can raise awareness. And we back then, we didn't have the numbers, but I think we do now. For Making Contact, I'm George Lavender in Los Angeles. That piece was produced by George Lavender, and we wish him well as he departs as one of our producers at Making Contact. George, you will be missed. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. To get our podcast, check out our website, radioproject.org. That's also where you can download past shows and make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, George Lavender, Jasmine Lopez, Laura Flynn, Quan Booth, and Barbara Barnett. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.